How to Think is a series of slow conversations between humans who re-center the work of listening, healing, justice, and love. Created with recording and technical support from Rosalind Odes, and with editing, mixing, and sound design by Feely and Studio Apothecaire. This is a DAS podcast presented in partnership with the Centre for Performance Philosophy at the University of Surrey in the UK and is part of the AHRC project Performance Philosophy and Animals, led by Laura Cull O'Mellerker, head of DAS Graduate School in Amsterdam. For transcripts, full credits and acknowledgements, including land and water acknowledgements, please visit the Performance Philosophy website, which is linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening. So, this one's a little bit different. It's a kind of reckoning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this is uncharted territory because it's our reflection conversation. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the podcast, How to Think. I'm your host, Rajni Shah, and in this episode, I have not one, but several conversations with the wonderful Julieta Singh, who you heard in the introductory episode. In this episode, Julieta and I find ourselves navigating themes of chaos, pain and loss on a whole number of levels. This one has a slightly unusual structure, so I'll just take a moment to explain what you're about to hear. Today's episode was recorded in two parts. The first conversation took place on a day when Julieta and I were both experiencing pain in our bodies, and it was lost when Julieta forgot to press the end button on the recording app she was using. In the second conversation, which you'll actually hear first, we reflect on this moment of loss and how it sits in relation to our desires for wholeness or mastery. Later, you'll hear parts of the original conversation that have been restored as if they were dreamings. The whole thing is a little bit meandering and messy in ways that feel utterly right for this episode. So I invite you to be open to feeling a little bit lost alongside us as you listen, maybe unhooking your own narrative expectations as we travel through time. As usual, there's more information in the show notes, and there's an attached episode for this one in which Julieta shares with us an extract from her new book, The Breaks. I hope you enjoy the listening. So, everything feels different. Um, it's, it's a Saturday. It's kind of early on a Saturday morning. So, that's a particular feel of, like, coming here and setting up. Um, I usually arrive hours before I do yoga. I do meditation. I do a ton of stuff. And I didn't. But I think I knew, I was also following a different kind of instinct. I kind of knew that I wanted to, well, I guess I figured that for me anyway, this conversation is a little bit about allowing the chaos in. And so I kind of wanted to allow it in a bit and I feel like I've been successful (laughs) because, yeah, it was a chaotic night. I didn't wake up as early as I thought I would. I, you know, kind of ran out of the house without having breakfast. Um, 
but I like it. I also feel like everything's different this time. And I feel like last time I started to talk and then it became the whole of the conversation around, you know, I think I was like, I want to say that I'm like not feeling great in my body. <laughs> and then you were like, oh my God, <laughs> we, we both have like the same language and the same feeling. But I, um, I'm really aware of even just the way that I'm situated. I'm in the exact same place. I'm wearing the same pants. <laughs> I'm in my Rajni suit. <laughs> But everything's a little more chaotic around me. Like my things aren't organized as properly as they were last time. Everything's a little more makeshift. And yet, um, maybe you're right because it's familiar. I feel like in, in a lot of acceptance about it. And then I laughed when I saw that your meeting title was like a short conversation on pain loss and mess <laughs> and I was like exactly <laughs> yeah um so I should probably tell you something as uh, before we get into our reckoning please Roz has been working with the Zoom recording from our last conversation. Mm -hmm. And we had a conversation the other day where she said to me quite triumphantly, I've, I think it sounds good. I think we can use it. So you don't need to have your extra conversation. And I felt kind of devastated. <laughs> this okay. I... I'm having exactly the same response. <laughs> it's like I went from, I lost the recording. I instantly knew and felt that I had done something wrong. I realized the following day exactly what I had done wrong. There was some sort of vague hope overnight that I would find a way to retrieve it, that it was floating out there somewhere in cyberspace and we would be able to grab it back I called the company <laughs> whose app it is um, and they confirmed that it was indeed gone for good and I went through over the course of maybe three days uh, including voicelets exchanged with you and also Rhea chiming in and Roz writing to make sure that I was everybody was like are you okay and it's okay that it happened. And somehow I went through a complete transformation from feeling quite bereft to feeling that it was right, that it was lost. And I figured out, in part, I was teaching um, over Zoom yesterday, I was teaching Toni Morrison's novel Beloved, which, among other things, is consumed by the idea that things that have happened in the past that appear to leave no trace, in fact, are always here, present. And it's a kind of haunting, um, but a kind of haunting that is so filled with interest and promise. And I kept thinking... Please pay attention for an urgent message concerning our power outage. This building has lost power and is being closed until power is restored. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This building is being evacuated. Please leave by the nearest emergency exit. Oh, no. Proceed to the designated assembly. I don't know if these are real because they keep cutting out. Is it maybe a test because it's Saturday? This building is being locked down. 
Stay inside building. It's telling you two different, it's telling you opposite messages. They're just testing all their messages. They're testing. It's pretty alarming though. Let's just listen to these intense (laughs) messages. Please pay attention for an urgent message concerning a hazardous gas leak. <laughs> Follow the directions of. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's every kind of message. Please pay attention for an urgent message concerning a hazardous chemical spill. Follow the directions of building wardens. Yeah, we're just going to have to listen to all of the um, disasters. Well, I just find the array of disasters, of possible disasters, very intriguing. We are directing everyone on campus to shelter inside buildings. Stay inside buildings and take shelter. I have no idea how long this will go on. I'm fascinated by it. Me too. This is definitely the biggest gap between them. Wow. That was very interesting and strange. Yeah. It's like we just receive more gifts for our thinking feeling around chaos and mess and loss. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so I was in the middle of saying when the voice of this Australian lady god (laughs) chimed in to direct us in every possible direction um, that I had really accepted the loss of that recording and in fact began to feel like the loss of the recording was right. So it's very strange to now have it be not found, but salvaged in a way that is audible. Yeah. You know, my first book, which was a academic book is called Unthinking Mastery. And I thought, well, this is yet another reminder of the kind of fantasy of mastery that we live through and then how radically unmasterful we are, (laughs) or at least I am. Um, And so I took it as ultimately not quite pedagogical, but um, I don't know, um, appropriate. (laughs) given the the sort of spirit of our dialogue and the question of here come the cicadas in my background again i don't know if you can hear them they're un they're unmutable um yeah it just it's so bizarre to think it's been retrieved because i was in the fullest like it was more than acceptance it was like this is right. <laughs> it's right that it was lost and we're going to do it again in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I mean, I I felt like I too went through that process of kind of shock and loss and hope that we might find it and and then that process is is really what taught me that each of these conversations will show me what what its work is and what its character is and I can trust that Mm -hmm. one of the things that the the loss of this recording that ends up not being a loss one of the things I kept thinking about was the kind of proximities and distances between intimacy and privacy in terms of our conversation because I've always understood that my 
relationship with you was about from the outset, the cultivation of certain forms of intimacy. And when I went into the recording with you, I understood that we were going to have an intimate conversation that was destined toward a certain kind of public, however large or small. But when we finished the recording and I lost it, I thought, well, maybe there was something that was private in the, in the exchange that didn't belong beyond us. And I couldn't possibly point to what that was, but I just wondered if there was a kind of feeling tone or energy that was about a kind of transmission between us that was going to stay between us or like live in the world around us, but, but unheard in that sonic register by others. And so it's very interesting now to kind of return to an idea that this thing I decided was private will become something else. I think there was a, you know, in that sort of full circle experience I had of like the feeling of loss, but also the feeling of self-recrimination and blame because fuck, why did I press that stupid button in the top right corner? Um, like it was my, it was my fault, you know, it was on my shoulders. And once I cycled through that and really registered the kind of total sweetness and acceptance of all of the parties involved and kind of went back and forth with you and thought about it and felt my way through it and kind of, you know, forgave myself for, for yet another technological flub in my life. I, um, I think I felt like the conversation had maybe been liberated in its loss. And so there's something about its return that feels um, like a really interesting form of haunting, that it's gone off and been mourned and released and now is coming back to kind of manifest in the way that we had intended for it to be in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what to do with that knowledge. But I'm also fascinated by the fact that, you know, we came back together today to do a really good, clean record of a conversation. And not only did we have that major interruption with the announcement of various disasters, which could be happening right now, um, I have a feeling that they're continuing to do the tests in other buildings, which might also be somewhere on, on my recording. <laughs> and this idea that the that we're always in the world. Mm -hmm. Even when we uh, insulate ourselves through a series of very particular specifications... <laughs> Closing blinds, turning off your this and that, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't get really more self-contained than <laughs> in following the instructions for how to properly record, and yet everything is still entering in. Yeah. And s somehow these conversations are always about what's already happening. Paying attention to what's already happening. Which relates, I think, to what you were saying about the haunting. Mm -hmm. What's already here. 
You know, my memory of the conversation was that it started with a kind of breathing exercise and you said, is there anything you want to invite in or let out? And I said, I feel like letting out and inviting in might be closer registers than we think. And then I started talking about my body. And then you started talking about your body. And then we realized that not only were we feeling discomfort in the same place, but that we had the same name for it, which was that our tails hurt. And then I just feel like the whole conversation was about um, like strange links. Like I remember you talking about your mother and blindness and being afraid of her falling and me saying, my mother fell and I'm afraid of the disability that she is living with now. Like everything that one of us said seemed to connect, not by association so much as by like actual deep embodied experience over and over again. That's my memory of the conversation. Mm. What about you? I think when I, in the moment that I knew, I think even in the moment that I knew it might be lost, though a part of me was hoping it might be retrieved, I also felt into it and I I understood that it was a conversation about pain in the body and somehow, I don't even know if about is the right word, but I feel like it was, what it was, was an experience of speaking around and with pain. And it's interruptions Mm. and kind of um, this isn't quite the right phrase but I want to say being humble to it Mm -hmm. but there was this messiness around the whole process that I I could feel myself trying to be in relationship with and it was almost like Losing the recording was an insistence. Mm
I feel like I annoy myself and I feel sort of embarrassed and sort of ashamed to say I'm kind of hurting, <laughs> which is so crazy because it's not a way that I would feel toward any other body in the world, but I feel that way toward my own and in relation to a, a you know, a public, a social sphere. Um, and so I think I wanted to like do some clearing by way of saying like, I've been kind of uncomfortable and I'm like on the upswing from a very difficult couple of months. Um, but I'm still like in my body feeling a little like oof in my body um, for the session, you know? So I think I, I wanted to just say like, I don't want to pretend that I'm not physically uncomfortable in some way. You know, I'm not perfectly comfortable because it's not possible for me to be right now. Um, I think that as a start, I might have more, but that's the big thing, you know, the big feeling for now. It's interesting that you said that because I have been in a pain pattern this week in my body, which is, um, I've always had some pain in some way that I've been in dialogue with. And this is, um, I, the, the best way I can describe it is a, it's a pain pattern that arrives and um, that I have to dialogue with for an unknown amount of time and then it goes away again and I, I learn from it, I, like I learn to befriend it. This morning I um, I looked over and I saw two friends who could come with me. And one of them is um, a Ganesh statue. And one of them is a very old, soft elephant that I've had my whole life, that I can remember. And, you know, my relationship with Hinduism is I was going to say complicated, but in some ways light. I'm born Hindu and my grandparents were, on that side certainly were very strict. No, I mean, it's, it's in the whole family, there's, you know, it's a very Hindu family. But my parents are really against religion. And I feel really ambivalent about, you know, associating with any of that right now, because I do not think that Hinduism is doing good things in the world. and. I'm very worried about it. But I love the idea that Ganesh stands for obstacles and a relationship to change and to obstacles. And and I love it as a connection to my to my granddad who I could never speak to very much. Um, but in the few words that we did exchange, I just felt like something really strong. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about, I met my grandmother who had come to Canada to visit from Punjab when I was eight and had the, you know, similar to you, we shared almost nothing linguistically and yet there was something so powerful in the meeting and affective exchange like I don't know that I ever felt so loved <laughs> by uh, someone who was a stranger actually by anyone as I felt in her presence
It's funny too, because the one memory that I have that I actually write about in my new book is um, the memory of my grandmother visiting. I have two memories of that visit. And one is that she taught me my first word, which was Hati, which is elephant. Mm. <laughs> because there were elephants on a curtain in my brother's bedroom. And that Hati then became the first word that my daughter learned. She learned Hati before she learned elephant. So she always in her mm. infancy said Hati and then had to learn elephant later on. So just, you know, an interesting little loop to your elephants present in that conversation. <laughs> I love it. I was thinking about your reminders before these sessions of like letting there be silence and being inarticulate and even if silence is awkward. And I was thinking as you were saying this for the second time that it's very hard to feel awkward in silence with you. It's easy to feel awkward in silence but you have a like a disposition that's a, an invitation toward silence, which therefore works completely against awkwardness. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think um, as a host, though, I also know that I I lay out all of those invitations and then. I can I can really struggle to sit with them. Maybe less so in a one-to-one -one conversation, but in a bigger group, I have to listen to the dialogue in my own head that says, nobody's saying anything, you know, <laughs> after having made that invitation so explicitly and knowing the value of it and trusting it and having led so many sessions that are about listening, I still have that voice that goes, Nobody's saying anything. Should I speak? Is something wrong? It's also such a perfect revealing of the fact that the, the work that each one of us is doing is a struggle to live into the politics that we're trying to create environmentally. So it's perfect that you struggle with silence when you're mode and motive is to create it, to circulate it, to spread it, to be in it. Yeah. And because I desire it and need it so much. Yeah, it's interesting that so often what we're struggling against, you know, what we're fighting against is exactly the thing that we simply need to welcome in another, you know, without judgment. <laughs> like the struggle is a, so often related to a self-judgment that we can't dismantle. But we struggle and struggle and struggle to let it go and really what we need to do is let it be where it is and be gentle toward it in relation to it.
think what I'm discovering more and more is that so many of the things that I felt like that I felt were being imposed on me by other people it's not that they weren't because I think a lot of those things relate to systemic issues but I also feel like for a long time I couldn't see the extent to which I was imposing them on myself and the work of that that place of letting go which is possible to do in a way that you know the systemic work is um is possible for sure but can feel impossible or can feel mm-hmm. yeah it can be hard to find any power in that whereas actually when i can recognize those things in myself they might be kind of shocking but i can then just let them go and allow myself to be who i am Well, it's interesting because, you know, the systemic things are the things, the things that you, that are imposed upon you from the outside so quickly and insidiously become internalized and the mode through which you relate to yourself. And I think, yeah, it's true that the ways that race or gender or ability or what have you come bearing down on you and the way that you understand yourself and see yourself are always profoundly intertwined when two trees or a tree and a vine grow together and are tightly wound that with the inside and the outside the systemic and the you know the actual insides of our bodies and and I think the work that I'm trying to do at the moment is to even just recognize the the impact of that or the emotions of that of all of those systemic forces and how they've shaped me but what I'm realizing is that I guess I'm thinking about indigenous knowledge systems and this feels like a really basic thing to say but I guess I'm just observing it in this moment which is you know the desire is so much to open to the world and to tune in and to be one with or maybe be many with um, feels more appropriate and and that feels like it's even though I think they're different things, but the work of telling that apart from what it feels like it's in conflict with, which is the systemic injustices of the world that have shaped me so strongly that I am so armored against or because of, 
those two things feel like, yeah, maybe those two things feel like they're intertwined. Mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful because you, uh, it was feeling like you were angling toward they're in conflict, but actually the whole idea of the creation of another world necessitates a dismantling of the one that is negatively bearing down upon us. I'm going to say us, meaning all living things. <laughs> and I think one also has to cultivate the world one wants to live toward, one wants to live into. And so the intertwining rather than the against. <laughs> Although I really like against in the, in the double sense of like brushing together, brushing against one another and resisting something, you know? So maybe against isn't, isn't wrong after all. Maybe we can be against the system precisely by feeling toward, moving toward, thinking toward other ways of being. And so I think, I think resistance is interesting because resistance is, resistance is happening even in the, the, the vine that's looping around the tree. It looks as though it's absolutely uncomplicated <laughs> in, in attachment. But in fact, there's all kinds of resistance at play in growth itself, in the kind of organic matter that is coming together and becoming one, but also more than one and more than themselves, you know? I just think we have an idea of resistance now that is not what resistance has always looked like and is certainly not the only model of resistance. And I think part of the tension, maybe in the here and now that you're feeling might be a resistance to a prescribed form of resistance. Resistance to resistance as it appears now to us, as it has become popularized without remembering that there are, there are so many extraordinary histories of resistance, not only human, but much more than human. And there will be well beyond us. Can we talk a little bit about pain? What did you call it again? You're experiencing a pain pattern. Pattern, a pain pattern. You know, I keep thinking about, I have a real resistance to, so I've had two emergency very critical neurosurgeries in my lower spine. And I understand that in some holistic healing way that my sister likes to explain to me that the, the back 
and the lower back is um, the place where we we hold trust or our lack of trust. And she would say, you know, you really need to work on trust. <laughs> and I really appreciate that as a kind of um, orientation toward healing and a form of um, embodied self-awareness or emergent self-awareness. But when one is profoundly hurt <laughs> and, and like critically wounded and having to undergo emergency hospitalizations and surgeries, it's hard to be like, I need to work on my trust. <laughs> Yeah, so I do feel like my pain pattern is something I'm in dialogue with, that I learn from. But also one of the questions that I have, that I carry, and that I have carried throughout doing the work I've been doing on listening is the question, how do I listen when I'm in pain? Because the two, you know, it's it's like, yeah, like that is not, the moment when you can look at trust or you know but it's a big question for me given that we're all in it in you know at some level we are all in pain or we're living within diseased and painful societies i I think that there's something really interesting about like individual pain and how to listen when one is in individual pain because my practice in the most negative way has always been like shut your body down, shut your consciousness towards your body down so that you can give the lecture, teach the class, participate in the conversation as though the body mm, precisely because it is in pain has to cease to exist, you know, and there's so many forms of that. I mean, like the gendered body, the racialized body, like we perform ourselves obviously socially in, in very particular ways to play into or against a politics that defines us. But I think with pain, instead of, recognizing it as a kind of identity politics that is cast upon us it's something that's happening inside of us that doesn't seem to be related to the outside world at all and therefore becomes our fault and therefore it needs to get shut down you know and i i think the question of like how we how we listen and maybe beyond listening or adjacent to listening how we mobilize ourselves and in relation to the world is so vital to thinking about the pain of the world, <laughs> whatever that world may be, however, however wide we want to cast the, the net of that term. And I think, um, you know, just beginning the session with you today and being like, I'm in pain and you being like, I'm in pain too, is really profound and instructive. So in November, when we were supposed to have our conversation and I had to cancel because my dog was very wounded, um, I had a very strange moment where my dog Ellery was expressing profound pain 
and I diagnosed his condition before bringing him to the vet to get a diagnosis. I diagnosed it because I radically identified with the pain that he was in and the mode of expression because I had been there. So I understood that he had injured his spine in a radical way that was not going to be able to heal without a serious intervention by the look in his eyes and the sound of his body because I knew it from my own experience. And I'm interested in, I mean, I think it was, you know, it was a, a very difficult, very profound moment for me because I essentially had to euthanize him for something that I had allowed myself to be treated for. And it created an extraordinarily difficult ethical crisis <laughs> in me. But also, I was in the perfect position to know how to act and react because I knew what he was going through exactly. So I'm saying all of this because there's no world in which we would say Ellery's injury was because he didn't trust. <laughs> We understand Ellery's injury to be about an aging body, a hard life, a world we didn't know before because he was astray, a genetic weakness. There's all kinds of ways of explaining it, but none would be his spine was radically injured because he had trust issues. <laughs> and so I guess in the end, I come out feeling very attached to the energetics of healing the possibilities of healing through breath work, through meditation, through all kinds of treatment. But I, I refuse the, the narrative of this is so because of this. This is so because you don't trust. This is so because, you know, because we are also bodies. Yeah. In some ways, we're primarily bodies. I feel like you gave me permission to dream in the night and to do the work of dreaming and for that to be valid nighttime work. <laughs> what did I say? Well, because it was late and I was talking about how I wanted to be a nighttime person who wrote late at night, but I've never really been that person. And, um, and you were just very clear that it's okay to sleep in the night and and I also said that my name means the night and so I always feel like I failed it in some way by not by being afraid of the dark actually oh interesting yeah and I do still you know that's something I still feel like I'm reckoning with but I had a conversation with my partner actually about this and they said you're afraid of the literal dark like everything literal about it being dark scares you but you're not at all afraid of darkness or shadow in other ways um, but yeah there was something about you saying that that made me feel like ah oh, yeah I do value that work and I speak about and write about valuing that work of dreaming in, you know, in the many different ways, but also quite, quite literally, you know, what our bodies do at night is so important. I feel like so much happens in the night for my mind, body, state, and 
that's a different kind of work that's really important. Absolutely. part of a dream that I've had in between our two meetings that I can remember is that my mum, who's blind, fell down a big set of stairs and was like falling, falling and then I woke up right after she'd kind of managed to hold on to something. <laughs> but it was also this very familiar feeling somehow of looking out for her in this very particular way because of her eyesight and her mode of being, of being very practical always, including in the moment when she's falling down a very grand set of stairs and like sliding down parts of the banister and, and but just looking for like where is the place where I can hold on or, you know. My mum a few years ago fell downstairs and took the weight of the fall on the back of her head and it caused a bleed in her brain, a hemorrhaging in her brain that ignited a hemorrhagic stroke. And so she became paralyzed on the right side through a fall that hit her head that ignited a stroke that paralyzed her. So I'm I'm really feeling that with you, the kind of fragility of her body and her being and the long distance from her and the impossibility with COVID of any kind of easy access to an aging and disabled body, mm. maternal body. It's very hard very intense yeah yeah I think I'm also coming to understand that we live with impossibilities Inevitably. Yeah.
I just um, finally read Octavia Butler's Earthseed books. Yeah. I felt so late. I feel late in when I read most things. But also I was glad to have waited. I'm also learning to wait till the right moment for when I can read something. I love being late to the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Discovering things, you know, when you're ready for them or when they find you or when you find each other. I think what I'm discovering is that I love the people who, for whom that resonates, who also feel late to the game. Yeah. But this, yeah, this idea of adaptation, change. And our capabilities, but also resist resistances to mm -hmm. actually changing. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I can feel it in myself because... We're starting to come into the hotter months and of course there are fires happening where you are right now, but also I'm aware that, you know, I've, I've been trying this whole year to feel into the reality of the rolling disasters that, you know, we've just heard announced, but that are very real for some of us, you know, and have been very real for many people for a long time. But in my world, I feel quite new as a daily lived experience. And mm -hmm. I've done so much work. I feel like I've done so much work to be with change and not knowing that's been so much of my practice for so long and yet my ability to really, really be with this moment is quite minimal or at least the power of my desire to go back to something is much stronger than I thought it would be. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't think I was very attached to that thing that I'm wanting to go back to, or those things, those sets of conditions, but to really imagine or feel into the work of nothing being known for someone like me I guess it just makes me realize how much, how much actually has been known and has been stable in my life. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of undoing that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to, to think about You know, I had a, a feminist mentor in my life for many years when I was in graduate school. And, you know, she used to look at me inquisitively around the ideas or questions or problems that I was persistently confronting in my work, like what, what it was that I was drawn to. And in a very psychoanalytic mode, she was like, you know, the things that you work on are always the things that you're trying to work out. And I think that there's something about the kind of commitment to certain kinds of practices or certain kinds of pursuits or the desire to follow particular lines of questioning or lines of thought that reveal so much to us about ourselves. And maybe not simply through 
or not strictly through the lens of like, I'm meeting this moment with a degree of instability because I've had so much stability, but rather precisely because of the path that you've been on in pursuit of kinds of acceptance and attentiveness and awareness of the moment and the surround and your practice of listening and your politics of listening. There's something about that that practice and that pursuit and that spirit and that desire that brings you exactly to this, which is a real attentiveness and a real awareness of a desire to go backwards, which is not, you know, you, you, one way of looking at that is to be like critical, like why after all this time do I want to go backwards? But the other is actually quite enlightened, like, wow, look at me in where I am, in what I've done, wanting to run backward to another time in another place. But it's the, it's the understanding, it's the attunement to that desire, which is possible precisely because of everything you've done along the way to get here. In other words, the desire to return doesn't have to be met with critique or resistance, but is in fact the outcome of the pursuit that you've been on all along. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It feels like an invitation as well to be less linear. Yeah. Yes. Linearity is not right. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fiction. Yeah. Of the most limiting kind. Yeah. Yeah. 